Hello and welcome to episode number 112 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture, I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, November 22nd, 2010. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast is another installment in the Holistic Management Series. The Holistic Management Series is a series of podcasts dealing with issues in holistic management, especially focused on research, data, and documentation. This episode will be published on our website, as usually, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, but will also be published on Holistic Management International's data and documentation blog. You can see the entire Holistic Management series on the data and documentation blog of Holistic Management, or you can go to agroinnovations.com slash podcast and click on the Holistic Management category. This episode is also sponsored by Holistic Management International. You can learn more by visiting Holistic Management's website at holisticmanagement.org. On this episode of the podcast, you'll be listening to a conversation that I had with Dr. Richard Teague. This conversation took place at the Kivera Coalition Conference a few weeks back, and the setting for it was at the Embassy Suites Hotel. So you will hear some background noise. Uh, There was a little fountain uh, with a waterfall in the background behind us. And uh, the microphone picked some of that up. You will also hear some people talking and some uh, elevator noise. But um, I think that uh, Richard Teague comes in loud and clear, so I don't see that background noise being a problem. So here's my interview with Dr. Richard Teague. Okay, we are joined by Dr. Richard Teague, a researcher at Texas A&M's AgriLife program. Dr. Teague is originally from Zimbabwe, but has spent many years in the United States doing research of the impacts of grazing management on land health. Dr. Richard Teague, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Hello, Frank. Glad to be with you. So let's start by talking about your approach to research. You've been heavily focused on working closely with ranchers. Why? Well, there's some serious uh, shortcomings in a lot of the research that's been done. A, it's at a scale that doesn't bear any resemblance to the way uh, land is managed. And B, it's not been managed adaptively um, to achieve desired results. So the research doesn't really represent the best that can be offered, particularly from a planned grazing aspect. There's been a very heated debate ongoing about the difference between continuous and rotational grazing. Can you explain your own position in this debate? Well, I've noticed, I've traveled widely in the world and I've seen successes um, amongst ranchers who've applied uh, principles intelligently and got desirable results. And uh, in contrast, few researchers have managed to do so. And uh, when you look at the reasons why, it's almost invariably because of the way um, research is managed versus the way the ranchers are managed. Okay, so can you flesh that out in more detail? I mean, what are the characteristics of how researchers manage as opposed to how ranchers manage? The first question is scale. When you're managing small plots, um, that doesn't, even if they're a couple of hundred acres or a thousand acres each, that doesn't really um, bear any resemblance to ranches, which are generally at five to 10,000 acres uh, as a management unit. So that's the first thing. Secondly, um, researchers, in order to minimize variability for statistical reasons. They like to make their plots uh, smaller uh, so that they're more uniform. 
A rancher, in contrast, has to put up with the variability inherent in a landscape, and and thus um, what happens at a landscape level is captured by the rancher and has to be dealt with, whereas the researcher who's dealing with small plots doesn't have to deal with issues that uh, determine how things actually operate at a landscape scale. One of the things that you have talked about and emphasized is the notion of managing towards a goal. Um, and you have worked with ranchers who are very effective at this. Uh, this is something that maybe researchers are either not familiar with or just um, perhaps their research designs are confounded by this concept. Can you talk about this and why it's important for us to find ways to do research in this, in this fashion? With specific reference to continuous grazing versus planned grazing with multiple paddocks, researchers, all they need to do to justify their existence is to get a, a publication at the end of the day. The rancher, in contrast, has to produce a result that is A, going to look after his environment or improve it, and B, make a profit. And those two are so far apart that when you're researching in the framework that most researchers do, it bears little resemblance to the information that a rancher needs. What, on your what based on your experience, are the best indicators for land health and why? The primary one is the amount of bare ground. For an environment to be healthy, the soil has to be healthy, and the prime factor there is the amount of carbon in the soil. If you've got any amount of bare ground there, um, the bare ground kills biological activity and uh, enhances the loss of carbon in any particular environment. So you need plant cover to, to minimize that. So that's, that's the prime one. The next one is being uh, occupied by plants that are highly productive and that are useful to the rancher. So those two things are the primary things you need to look at. Okay, are there other indicators besides uh, bare ground and plant species composition that um, maybe are not as important but also are things that people need to be looking at? Certainly. Anybody who, who's managed to multipasture a paddock very well um, knows that you can have the same species composition and you can manage those species to get desirable results or undesirable results. One of the things you really need to look for is to have plants that are nutritious for the animal but are never overutilized that uh, weakens the plants. And you can manage in many different ways that either enhances or degrades either of those things. Can you talk about some of those ways that uh, people are actually managing to enhance those things? The ranches that I've seen operating in any environment, particularly in, in the moisture rangeland areas, um, if you utilize your desirable plants moderately and allow them to recover before using them again. And generally where people fail is they fail to give a, a long enough uh, recovery period after defoliation. And this is particularly important uh, during the growing season. Those are the two things that really, if you look after them well, your animals are going to do well and your plants are going to do well and, and the health of the vegetation and the soils is going to improve. How, what is the best way for uh, a rancher to determine a recovery period? Are these things, uh, are there, is there solid research evidence that backs this up for different environments or how is this being determined and uh, do we need more research in this area? Well, the research is basically there. But what researchers are not skilled at or experienced at is how do you put this into a management framework in a variable environment? Uh, 
to succeed, one has to have goals um, that are attainable and that are going to provide your bottom line. Let's just assume that they are looking after the environment and improving it while um, earning a, a decent profit. In order to do those things in a variable environment, you can't be static like keeping the number of days of grazing static or keeping the, num the number of days of recovery static. As, as the environment changes, when you've got long dry periods or periods that are fairly wet and you're growing rapidly, you've got to change how you manage in each one of those things adaptively, uh, keeping in mind your goal at any time. So if you keep things static, you're basically likely to fail. But if you can intelligently manage adaptively towards a, uh, a goal, then you're much more likely to achieve it. Okay. Um so let's now talk about, you have done a lot of research on this and you have many years of data from your research on ranches. What does your data tell us about the impact of different grazing systems on land health? When I first started looking at making a comparison between traditional ranching and its impact compared to planned grazing and its impact, one thing you've got to remember in rangelands is that it takes many years under a specific kind of management. Um, to effect a change because rangelands generally change slowly and you've got variable environments. So we chose areas that had been managed uh, conventionally either heavy or light stocking compared to planned grazing um, that had been managed specifically to improve the botanical composition aiming at, at uh, dominance by high cereal grasses and increasing the amount of litter on the ground. And that's what we looked for to compare between the different managements. What we've done is, um, because you can't replicate uh, ranches adequately, what we've done is, in each of three um, proximate counties, we have chosen those three managements, light continuous, heavy continuous, and heavy uh, planned grazing, We've chosen those three treatments in each of three proximate counties. And we've measured um, soil parameters and vegetation parameters that affect ecosystem health. And we've also looked at the soil microbes. And essentially what we came up with was the, the areas that had been adaptively managed under planned grazing had better species composition than the light continuous both of which had much better species composition than the heavy continuous. Um, in addition, the, there was very little difference in the soil physical parameters, although the heavy continuous had the poorest aggregate stability and the poorest uh, penetration resistance, which is an, uh, a measure of compaction. Regarding the, um, the, the chemical effects uh, on the vegetation, the, the highest soil carbon was measured with the planned, um, the planned rotational grazing, even though it had a very high stocking rate. But the, the vegetation was managed in a manner where there was very high productivity and there was never any low biomass levels because we, we hit the grasses lightly and then allowed them to recover fully. As a consequence of the high uh, carbon in that treatment, the cation exchange capacity, the basal fertility, was much higher than the light continuous grazing, both of which were much higher than the heavy continuous grazing. And the soil carbon in the heavy continuous grazing was significantly lower than either of the other treatments.
So it seems like uh, you can light continuously graze and be okay, but if you do more of a planned management intensive grazing, then you can actually get more out of the same amount of land. Is that, is that one of the implications of your research? That is one of the implications, but when you look at a landscape under light continuous grazing, although you stocked lightly for the whole area, generally between 25 and 30 percent of the area is being grazed much more heavily than the rest. So you've got a, a high degree of overutilization and a high degree of underutilization in the same landscape. Whereas if you've got a planned multi-pasture system with many paddocks, you can have a much better control on how much of the land is grazed the way you want it to be and achieves the required recovery. So you're getting um, ecosystem function and soil health um, facilitated across the whole landscape in the planned rotational grazing. Whereas this happens just in, in patches um, and generally you've got over and under utilization in the light continuous grazing. With a heavy continuous grazing of course you've got a much greater proportion of the landscape that is being more heavily grazed than is sustainable. So that really is, is not a good sustainable option at all. But the light continuous grazing, um, if you don't want to move cattle, um, yeah, it's the only way you're going to get close to being sustainable. But it still is not making efficient use of the, of the landscape. Um, when we did um, use statistics to see how similar these, these different things were, um, the light continuous grazing and the heavily stocked uh, planned grazing were very, very similar in terms of soil function, uh, infiltration and plant composition. But in terms of the total productivity from the two, the planned rotational grazing was streaks ahead. And that translates into greater profitability for ranchers, isn't that so? Absolutely. And I think there's quite a bit of evidence from other literature uh, that as soon as you've got a healthy soil with a particularly a high fungal to bacterial ratio, which is what, what you get with the planned rotational grazing and dominance by the high cereal grasses, that that generally translates into healthier animals and we think that this translates into better human health as well. But we still got to do that research. Well, there's a few points in what you just said that I think uh, maybe is worthwhile to, to explore in more depth. One of the things you talked about is utilization. Do you think there are general rules of thumb for how much of the standing plant biomass managers should, should actually utilize? Um, I wonder if you have any comments on this. Well, in rangelands, your prime concern has got to be maintaining or improving ecosystem function. And really, maintaining the amount of litter cover is absolutely crucial to maintaining optimal um, ecosystem function. So you've always got to be cognizant of, if you're too light on the litter, then you need to manage in a way that actually improves your litter component. And the most sophisticated graziers using planned grazing actually change their graze to trample ratios to actually deal with that issue when it's necessary. And that's the mark of a good manager is if he can do that to really soup up and, and achieve the maximum ecosystem function. Okay, so can you, can you maybe uh, talk us through some examples of this, when they might want to shift their graze to trample ratio and how they can kind of keep track of that and, and manage for that? 
when you first begin to to manage uh, a previously continuously managed area, there's usually a lot of bare ground that has to be covered uh, to start making sure that all the ecosystem function, the infiltration, the cooling of the soil surface so that your microbes function efficiently. So just by giving a rest, you're able to increase the amount of standing crop biomass. But it takes a while before that translates into litter on the ground, which really fosters the most healthy soil microbes. Under those circumstances, you can, out of the growing season, you can spend a bit of time um, having a high density of animals to knock a lot of the, the old dead material down and increase your litter component so that it actually um, speeds up the amount of litter that gets on the ground. The reason I say you don't do this in the growing season is if you did that you would probably uh, forfeit animal performance and uh, ranchers generally operating in a tight financial line they wouldn't really want to do that mm -hmm. and really if you can do it in winter when there's more old dead material standing that's as good a time to do it as any um, and, and you achieve the same effect. One of the things that you also talked about was this idea of patchy areas on the landscape under continuous grazing. And I know that you have published some research showing that when we do actually do planned rotational grazing, we can, under drought conditions, reduce that amount of patch deterioration. Can you talk a little bit about that? We hypothesized in an experiment we did it, uh, this is at a large scale, each of the treatments was four to five thousand acres. And we didn't have a very sophisticated rotation system. It was an eight pasture system, so that, that's the sort of bare minimum to start achieving some of the good things. But what we hypothesized that was if we, if we used the vegetation moderately when we were grazing and then allowed sufficient recovery of those grazed patches before we came back again, then the plants would be strong enough and they would tiller and expand their basal area so that they covered the ground better um, and started covering those bare ground areas as well as putting litter on the ground. And in fact that's exactly what happened relative to continuous grazing at the same stocking rate. We managed to cover the ground uh, much better. And that cover on the ground uh, increased rapidly during good uh, growing periods like a, a wet season. But as soon as we got into a drought cycle, then uh, they also decrease, but not at the same rate as under continuous grazing. So in the long term, my interpretation of that is um, by allowing sufficient rest and using a higher density of animals for short periods of time, you cover the ground much better. So you're allowing for better microbe um, activity in the soil. You also got a greater basal area of your perennial plants, all of which improves ecosystem function and your overall productivity, which in time translates into increased uh, revenue from the ranch. You've also done a lot of research on the use of fire to control shrub invasions. How and when is fire a useful tool? Well, the research we did was in a, in a mesquite environment, and the, the owners of the property and the people who paid for the research, they wanted to know um, how good a, a job could fire do in controlling uh, mesquite and prickly pear. So we set out to uh, a research project that would determine um, when fire would be appropriate, um, how you manage to get the best use out of fire regarding its control of those plants, 
and how you needed to change your management to, to, to optimize that deal. And we used fire um, and basically we found that if your mesquite got beyond about 12% cover then it was not going to be controlled by fire because it had already started to affect the amount of grass there which affected the um, efficacy of the fire in controlling the brush and the pear. So unless you've you've got very low levels of pear and mesquite, um, fire's not going to do a very good job on them. It really is, if you can see there's a problem coming, you can use fire. Now the downside of fire, and this is one of the things that we measured in particular, is that it removes all litter from the surface of the soil. So your soil gets much hotter, you destroy the microbial action, and it slows down all your ecosystem functions. Not a good thing. So after the initial a greening up of the fire where the animals do well for a period until your, your litter cover and that recovers is your ecosystem's not functioning as well as it can. Mm -hmm. Which in a, in a semi-arid environment that's not a good thing. And basically it took us between two and three years to recover. If you had a drought it wouldn't recover until you had one decent rainy season to get things to recover. So that's the downside of using fire. It actually does negatively impinge uh, a major portion of your ecosystem function. And if you can do it without that, that's a good thing. So can that be done? I mean, it almost sounds like uh, one of the things you said is if you have a drought, well, nobody knows when you're going to have a drought. So, I mean, is it just too risky to, to kind of try to do this with fire? Or what are your thoughts? If you're going to use fire, you've got to be opportunistic. But even if you've used the fire because you've got a, had a decent uh, rainy season and there's enough grass to have, have the desired effect on, on killing either the pear or the mesquite, you still are open to the next season. You don't know what's coming the next season. If you have a drought, then you're out of pocket in terms of productivity until it recovers again. And um, we looked at it from a complete system standpoint, so we try to figure that into all the costs. And you can take the pressure off the burnt area onto the other areas for a short period of time in a rotation system um, but it's still at the end of the day we felt that most most producers if they were going to burn either 10 or 20 percent just say uh, 12 or 25 percent of the area to control then they would probably need to decrease their animal numbers by that amount so that they had the benefit of having relatively low stocking rates to not negatively affect the environment now we did some 30-year um, net present value calculations to determine the economics of that. And basically the, the, the cost of using fire was so low and the benefits lasted long enough that you could decrease your stocking rate by 25%. And if you regularly used fire, it would still pay you relative to not doing anything. Because the woody plants are increasing so quickly, they decreased your productivity. So not doing anything actually impinged on your, your productivity. Mm -hmm. But um, there's, it would probably be better, less risky certainly, to not use fire and use an alternative. Now, I don't go for chemicals, but in this particular example with mesquite, there's very few alternatives. You can do it with a dozer, but then your net present value is over 30 years, you're spending a dollar and only getting 30 cents return on it. That's not good economics. But with chemicals, we found that if you spend a dollar, you could get a return of between two and a half and three dollars mm -hmm. per hectare. 
so that at least paid for itself and you didn't have the risk associated with the burning. What about the environmental effects of burning? I mean, everybody's so concerned about the release of carbon in the atmosphere and if you're managing holistically, I mean, is this something that would test against some of the sustainability and environmental uh, questions? We looked at that very carefully and we worked out that after a burn, if you were followed by an average or better rainy season, we recovered all the carbon that was volatilized within six months. And within eight months, if it was a poor rainy season. So the net carbon balance was in the favor of, of the burning, whether it was a wet or a dry year following the treatment. Um, what are the areas where we need the most research as we move forward? We, we've done the research that I mentioned earlier on uh, three con contiguous counties and, and, and uh, point sampling on the same soils and the, that the ranches that have been managed differently. But really what we need to do is start looking at what's happening to the whole ranch landscape and comparing that with alternative ways of doing it. So we're busy um, looking at and trying to get funding for remote sensing to pick up and, and you, can, you can do this retrospectively back to 75 because the database is there. We can go back to people who've begun uh, planned grazing and we can take photographs of the amount of bare ground and the amount of standing crop of, of biomass that they've got uh, each month before they started and up to now. And that's what we want to do on these properties and their neighbors to see, okay, let's look at what's happening in the whole landscape because you need to know what's happening around the water points and as you move away from the water points uh, how soon does the degradation uh, disappear. And we feel that by looking at the whole landscape like that we're going to get a much better idea of um, the true impact of one grazing uh, choice versus another. I think that's a way to go and th there's quite a bit of evidence that, that we need to look at um, using some models to further understand some of the things that we're looking at. Because although a lot of ranches are achieving good results, we don't know if they're the best possible results. And I think in examination using simulation models, we can ask it different things and maybe get some insights that say, okay, if we tweaked our management this way or that way, we might do better than we're currently doing. And one example of that is what some ranchers are trying is by increasing the periods of recovery from say 90 days to double that, mm -hmm. they're achieving much greater results. We haven't got any experimental evidence for that. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of things that we might be able to actually examine with a simulation model as well as looking at what's happening uh, with the same thing in the field and comparing the results we get from those two sources. You have expressed some frustration with uh, some of uh, the research scientists who are looking at some of these questions in part because they are not applying a, a participatory research approach and working with some of the best ranchers to find out what it is they're doing uh, that is so effective. I wonder, but on the other hand, there are a lot of now younger researchers who are coming up and who are much more receptive to these concepts. I wonder what you would have to say to people who are maybe in that younger generation and who are looking to get involved in this and how would you uh, advise them to approach a participatory research model? In many subjects, the people, the, the leading practitioners from medicine 
through to soils, through to grazing management, the leading practitioners are miles ahead of the researchers. They've tried things and they've used their intelligence and observational skills to figure out without having to do a fully replicated study. Now that's not perfect, but science needs to have that replicated study, or at least if you're dealing at the landscape where you can't truly replicate, uh, do it in a couple of locations where you can show that it works in a number of locations and therefore that adds credibility to the results that you're getting. By working with those leading, um, those leading people you can also um, do good science um, and you're not constrained by what is usually the case that researchers don't have management skills. Neither do they have the resources at, the, at, at a, an appropriate scale to examine things as, as effectively as a rancher can. So by combining those things together and working in partnership with the leading practitioners, I think we're going to push uh, the ignorance boundaries back a lot more. On rangelands and other grasslands, are grazing animals a necessary component to maintain land health? And if so, in what ways? Well. Grazing lands and grazing ungulates um, co-evolved and a number of circumstances in many ecosystems around the world people have um, had a look at if you remove grazers entirely what happens to the functions and I don't know a single circumstance where the, the ecosystem functions haven't closed down and almost stopped completely so yes uh, but what we've got to be cognizant of is if they're managed poorly then you can destroy ecosystem function as well. We, you've basically got to know what you're doing and manage towards sustainability goal that enhances functionality. Well, uh, I wonder if there's anything that uh, I didn't ask you about or, or that you really think it's important for people to be aware of uh, that you'd like to say in, in concluding this interview. I've traveled around the world and I've made it my business to find out who's managing the land really well wherever I've gone and I've, I've learned from them and tried to put that in context with a lot of the research that's been done and the leading ranchers around the world almost without exception use some form of planned grazing using a number of camps per pasture but they also use adaptation and basic common sense to achieve desirable results um, I believe the best results that I've seen anywhere have always been with, with planned grazing. And the devastation I've seen wherever I've gone has been under continuous grazing. So I really have little time for continuous grazing. Well, Dr. Richard Teague, I'd like to thank you for your time. I'd like to thank you for the great research that you've done. I'd like to thank you for encouraging people to reach out to these good practitioners. And I'd like to thank you for uh, spending some time with me here today. Thank you, Frank. Good luck. <clears throat> that concludes my interview with Dr. Richard Teague. Again, I'd like to thank Richard Teague for joining me for um, this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast. And I'd like to remind our listeners that this is another installment in the Holistic Management series of the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Holistic Management is also on Facebook. I would strongly recommend that you uh, check out Holistic Management International's Facebook page, uh, there you will find lots of updates on events and of all these podcasts that go out that are in the Holistic Management series. Uh, you will find links to them on the Holistic Management Facebook page as soon as they come out. 
uh, and lots of other great information and uh, interaction with people who are active in the holistic management community. So what you can do to find that page is you can go to holisticmanagement.org and uh, scroll down to the bottom on the right-hand side of the page. You will see a link to their Facebook page. Or alternatively, you can just open up Facebook and type in Holistic Management International into the search bar, and uh, that should come right up. So again, I'd strongly encourage you to check that out. Holistic Management International is also on Twitter, and you can find that again on Holistic Management International's uh, website, their homepage. Or you can go to twitter.com and you can look for HM International. Now, next week, I do not believe there will be a podcast as uh, I will be traveling to California for uh, some work that I am doing out there. Um, but the week after that, I will try to get something out to you. I'm not sure what that will be, uh, but hopefully it will be interesting and hopefully you will enjoy it. I appreciate people who have gotten back to me uh, on the Sepp Holzer interview. I have received uh, several inquiries on how listeners can help to facilitate an interview with the great permaculturalist Sepp Holzer. And I just have not had a chance to follow up on any of those, but I will and I plan to. And I uh, thank you all for volunteering who have volunteered. I will figure out who is the best candidate for facilitating that. And then uh, I will try to set up an interview. So be patient. Hopefully we will get uh, an interview with Sepp Holzer here on the Agro Innovations Podcast. And um, I hope that uh, that will happen soon. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.